Welcome to the PBL Playbook, brought to you by Magnify Learning, where we equip teachers with project-based learning tools today so they can engage and empower their students for the future. This podcast will give you the playbook of real PBL facilitators in the classroom, just like you, and help bring you strategies and tools for your PBL game. Now, here are your PBL Playbook hosts, Josh and Andrea. Welcome back to the PBL Playbook. We are your hosts, Josh and Andrea. As summer is winding down and we start to prepare to get back into the classroom, one of the most important things to consider is how to create a positive classroom culture where PBL can thrive for the entire year. Anyone who has been to a PBL school or has visited a PBL classroom will tell you that PBL looks, sounds, and feels different than a traditional classroom setting. In this episode, we will have a conversation with two PBL facilitators about what the ideal classroom culture for PBL is and how they go about creating it. All right, let's dive into that conversation. Uh, We are here today with PBL facilitators Rochelle Ancliffe and Raven Chandler, both from Columbus, Indiana. Rochelle and Raven, thank you for joining us. To start us off, why don't you each introduce yourselves, tell us where you teach, what level, and a little bit about your PBL experience. Hi, I'm Rochelle. I facilitate language arts at Columbus Signature Academy New Tech, which is the high school. This will be my 11th year at CSA, and I have enjoyed growing in my PBL facilitation and learning something new every year. Hi, my name is Raven. I teach third grade this year at Clifty Creek Elementary School. For the past eight years, I have been at CSA Fadria in third grade and fifth grade. That's where most of my PBL experience has been. I enjoy seeing those aha moments and can't wait for this podcast. Awesome. Thanks again for joining us today. Um, So we're going to dive right into this conversation. Can each of you guys talk to us about what you feel the ideal PBL classroom looks like, sounds like, feels like, um, and then maybe a little bit about how it's different in the secondary versus elementary. I feel like, this is Rochelle, and I'm the high school facilitator. I feel like the ideal PBL classroom um, probably looks a million different ways on a million different days. Um, On some days, you might see the kids really engaged in project work, working in their teams, collaborating, you know, researching online, working very independently. Other days you might see them in workshops with a facilitator leading the charge. Um, You might see students leading a a workshop. You might see another time students engaging in um, articulating what their need to knows are for the project. So I think ideally uh, a a PBL classroom looks differently based on what the goal for the, the kids is that day and what the task is at hand. So it's, to, to describe a, a one and done, I think is impossible because just like in a work environment or any authentic environment, uh, the situation is gonna look different entirely when the work is different. I agree, especially on the elementary level, um, especially starting off in kindergarten, you are just teaching small, simple steps. Whereas when you get to sixth grade, it can be almost full out PBL. So I think there are different models, Um, especially in a third grade classroom. You will see PBL similar to what you might see in middle school and secondary. 
um, where you will have small groups, you might have large groups working together, you're teaching the roles to those students so they are able to get into groups and kind of carry out those tasks as well. Um, just like Rochelle said, there are many different levels of PBL depending on what project they might be working on, depending on where you are in that project, if you have community partners coming in that day. So I think that's um, a hard question to answer because every day it might look a little bit different. Oh, what you said, Raven, made me think of a, maybe another difference between elementary and high school uh, project-based learning. I teach mostly juniors and seniors, and by the time my kids are in 11th and 12th grade, they really can do a lot of the facilitation themselves. Um, one of the ways that you can utilize the strength in a room is by having a kid who's really good at a particular skill facilitate a workshop. Absolutely. Um, you might ha- and that's probably true at elementary mm-hmm. school um, level as well. I, additionally, at the high school level, the kids are driving the boat, I think, a lot more maybe than, um, and maybe not, maybe I'm incorrect to say that, but um, kids will be capable of designing the parameters of their own projects, so you might just give them little bits and pieces and then let them really go with the design work. By the time my kids get to junior and senior year, they've had, well, this group of juniors will have had, I think, They've been in PBL school since first or second grade. Probably. So they can really uh, manage the show, mm-hmm. which is kind of a powerful experience to Absolutely. offer to kids. Absolutely. So what are some of the non-negotiables when it comes to classroom culture in a PBL setting? Like what, what has to be there for it to allow PBL to thrive? I think that uh, creating classroom culture is the probably most important thing that you can prepare when you're trying to do project-based learning. Any project can sit on top of a strong culture. It doesn't matter if it's PBL or a sort of falsified project or a simulation. It could even be a worksheet or a standardized test. I think anything can stand on top of a strong classroom culture and be successful, and I think that's inherently true of PBL. So I think some of the things that you have to have in a classroom culture when you're trying to successfully do PBL would be things like um, a a strong student-centered feel. Um, Kids can't function in a PBL classroom if they don't feel autonomous, if they don't feel empowered, if they don't feel capable of throwing a hand up and saying, wait, I don't understand this, can we have another workshop? Um, This this collaboration isn't going well, can I have a check-in to smooth things out? Kids need to feel empowered um, to, to be motivated to, to master their own destinies. Otherwise, they get in the weeds and they, they, they crumble um, if they don't feel like their voice matters, they have tools to um, describe problems they're having, um, if they don't have protocols to work through situations. So I think focusing on what students need and articulating a set of classroom expectations and norms that allow kids to manage themselves and to be responsible for what they know and what they don't know and how they're functioning and and allowing them to have that autonomy creates a powerful classroom culture. I think that's really important because my first year teaching a PBL setting, I think that was one of the lessons I learned right away. I, you know, I went through the project planning forum and I um, had the entry event and I got the need to knows and then I just decided I'm going to do this, then this, then this, then this, and I, I just followed the calendar that I had always followed for teaching that type of unit and the the project fell apart because students didn't feel that they were driving the project. They said, why do I have to do this? Well, because this is what I planned today as opposed to 
well, I'm doing this because we're answering this need to know or that need to know. So I think having that student-centered uh, classroom is, is going to be really important. And then having processes for for coping with what happens when the, you know, the facilitator feels we need to go in this direction, but the class feels we need to go in this direction. How do we manage that? How do we handle that? Uh, so that we can keep moving in our curriculum, but also respect that students have have these questions. I really, I really do like what you just said. I think voice and choice is something that, as uh, the more I teach, the more that I understand that's one of the most important parts, in, along with collaboration. Because we might have something set up, we want it to go a certain way, and it might not go that way. The, the students don't have that buy-in. So I do definitely feel that voice and choice is huge on any level, elementary, middle, or secondary. Yeah. And that can be scary for, mm-hmm. for new teachers um, and for veteran teachers right. who, who might be experiencing a different type of teaching. So how do you even start introducing voice and choice into the classroom without feeling like you've lost complete control of, of the classroom? I think it's definitely um, an important piece and something that, you know, as an educator, you have to realize you put what is your student's best interest first. And especially with PBL, um, in an elementary classroom, I normally start off the year with an I Wonder board. And I think that is something that is huge for the students to always put up post-it notes. What are they wondering about? What are they thinking about? And it can be a statement or a word. And that gets a conversation rolling. And that's kind of where we base a lot of our PBLs on at a lower level. Um, And I think them choosing that project, and then we, of course, vote and things like that, but something as simple as a I Wonder board allows their voice to be displayed for others to see as well. That's just a small part. That's something that we do in elementary. I think also, um, you know, for somebody just starting out and maybe somebody who's a little bit nervous, you don't, I always say, you don't need to embrace every component of everything to do with project-based learning on day one. You could run a traditional unit and just reflect at the end and ask the kids to identify um, what worked for them and what might be changed for the next time. That little winky bit of student input then could be used to drive your next project. And the kids see that you're doing things that they suggested, and that empowers them. So then you implement something else, like maybe the next project you do a know and need to know list. So you're giving kids an opportunity to voice what it is they know and to articulate what it is they would like to learn about or what they don't know. So then you design workshops and lesson plans around that little piece and kids see that you value their voice and that you are authentic when you say, I I value voice and choice in this classroom. And they start to buy in the more they see you um, use those processes and then they start to, to value the voice that they have so they know that their voice drives the, the learning that happens in the classroom. So they feel that that power is um, inherently packaged with some responsibility to take care of what happens in the classroom. So then maybe if things are going wonky, you know, kids are not on task or um, things are not going as planned or you're not meeting your benchmarks, then you have a little class meeting and you um, harness the energy in their voice and you say, okay, what's going well? How can we continue to do this project and meet benchmarks what's not helping us what what is derailing us from meeting the needs of this project and they will be very honest because you've shown a couple times already that you value what they say and sometimes the kids voice and the kids suggestions are lots stricter than what I would ever come up with you know they'll come up with these crazy expectations that I think my goodness that's a little strict but they'll say no if we're going to get this done we have to have a no earbud rule or something like that because they've mm-hmm. they've learned that uh, their voice matters and their suggestions are going to be implemented. 
Yeah, I think it's always funny, like when when we get to this part of a, a PBL Jumpstart workshop, and we talk about setting classroom norms. There's always a, a handful of teachers go, well, won't they just say like we can use our cell phones to play games and all that? And and there's always a kid who wants to suggest that, and the rest of the class just goes, we won't be productive if that's part of our expectations. So it, it's you know certainly one of those things where. Uh, I think we need to trust our students to to be the best uh, agents for their their own learning when it comes to setting up those those classroom expectations because ultimately they do know what they need to be successful in a lot of cases and they'll they'll advocate for that once they are given the power to do so. And I think um, something that you just said, setting up classroom expectations and, and giving them power. In, in my traditional classroom, I would give my students the class expectations on the first or second day of school, and those were our expectations for the, for the whole year, unless something new came up. That's, that's just how we were going to roll. I think in a PBL classroom or a successful classroom, you've got to revisit those things constantly. They're evolving constantly. It's like the workplace. Uh, you can't use a set of expectations from a decade ago in a factory and expect the technology and the worker training and the productivity to be the same. So you can't have that stagnant set of expectations. It's, it's got to be a continuous discussion. It's got to be um, debriefing and reflecting at the end of every project, at the end of every um, quarter, at the end of every semester, maybe even in smaller increments, maybe at the end of the need-to-know list. You say, okay, what worked well with this need-to-know list? What do we need to change? And so you're modifying and, and redoing how um, the classroom expectations look based on the needs of the kids as they grow because uh, day 180 student is not the same kid as a day one student coming into your classroom. So you've got to be flexible and um, malleable with what it is you're doing in your classroom. And you really have to take, you know, take the feedback that you get and implement something with it. You know, if you if you collect feedback after every project, but you don't change anything that you're doing, uh, students will see that too, and they'll they'll feel that their voice isn't valuable. Uh, they might be given a voice, but they really aren't aren't making impact on uh, on the classroom and on the way things are being run. So, are there any other things that you guys do? You know, we're we're getting ready to start school, so day one, setting up that classroom culture. Is there anything else that you guys do to make sure that that classroom is ready for PBL um, and is going to have that successful year of PBL? I think on the elementary level, it's going to look a little bit different just because we are modeling the terminology, the vocabulary um, every single day, you know, what our day looks like. And I think having an open um, communication with the students too, when I make a mistake to let them know that I was in the wrong and just have that conversation, feeling comfortable with um, just being able to raise your hand and, and make a comment and talking about thank you for saying that. And I'm huge on growth mindset, so we have a lot of growth mindset up in the room. I think that's definitely huge for our classroom. Um, just creating that culture, I think it's very important just to start off day one, kind of introducing yourself and talking about things and getting to know each other, you know, um, having some icebreakers and, and being able to trust each other. And I think that's something that not just the first day, but c- continuously going back to those things, just making sure that they know the reason I'm there is for them. And then we create um, a classroom, um, a better classroom culture that way. We go over our norms. We go over our expectations. And I create those expectations with the students. I don't say, here are my class rules. Welcome to my room. We do that together as a group. We sit down and we write those together and we go back and revisit. And I think doing that definitely sets them up for success. I would agree. And I think... 
the most important thing I maybe had as an epiphany is realizing that the kids don't come equipped necessarily with um, the expectations for how to function in a PBL classroom, especially if you're new to PBL or your school is new to PBL. Kids aren't just going to show up and say, oh, okay, it's collaboration time now. I know how to have a check-in with a group mate who's not cooperating. Or, oh, it's you know time for us to independently work. I know how to set a, class, uh, a daily agenda. So you've got you've to teach the kids. You've got to give them the tools. It's not fair to expect a kid to do something you have never taught him Absolutely. or her how to do. So I even remember in my first classroom that I tried PBL in, it was a traditional classroom. I shared the room with a traditional teacher later in the day, so the, class, or, or the desks were set up in rows. And I had to teach my kids how to go from rows to desks or groups um, in 15 seconds silently. So we practiced it. The first day of school, I said, okay, I'm going to call out a number. Um, it was four tops or two tops or three tops because I had worked at a restaurant, so that's what we call the tables. So I would say four top, and they had a group of four. They already knew who the group of four is. They stood up, and they moved their desks silently. They didn't, we had a, an expectation that when they stood up, they couldn't talk until their desks were formed into, into fours, and we practiced it. We made a game out of it, and we did it to see how you know what time we could get it um, under, and we, we settled on 15 seconds was how we got into groups. I couldn't spend no time doing that and then hold them accountable the rest of the year for being slobs trying to get into groups. So that was important that they be able to reconfigure that room in a short amount of time so we could have maximum collaboration, so we practiced it. Or um, if you're practicing knows and need to knows with a group of kids who have never done that before, they don't know what they know and what they don't know, so sometimes you have to prompt them and you have to say, okay, here's an example, or let's have a thought partner, or um, let's look at this um, this uh, example from last year and look at the kids um, and how they highlighted knows and need to know. So you can't expect them to just show up and magically be capable of all of these high-level things when maybe they've never been asked to think outside the box before. Absolutely. And you can't really expect to get all of that information in all at once at the beginning. I think that's something else that uh, sometimes teachers panic about, okay, I know that kids need to know how to collaborate, they need to be able to um, do presentations, they need to be able to... That's not all going to have to happen in that first project. There are going to be times where you know going in that kids might be uh, preparing for a really big presentation in front of a community partner, so that project you really emphasize uh, how to create a professional uh, presentation using a set of slide decks that isn't just PowerPoint, and so you intentionally uh, figure out a way to to build that into your project planning and project calendar. Um, but you don't have to teach all of the collaboration skills, all of the um, problem-solving skills before you start a project. I think it's best to just start the project and then use those natural occurrences where groups are having trouble with something or they get stuck on a problem to, to uh, create those teaching moments. I was just going to say I really like that um, idea of finding those teaching moments. So if you, if you are at the beginning of group time and you say, okay, I'm going to teach you all the hints and helpful tools for collaboration, it's not going to stick because the kids don't need it. But when you're knee-deep in group work and you see a group really working well and then maybe four or five groups malfunctioning, 
that's the point at which you stop and debrief the situation. And I've done that a million different ways from taking a picture of the groups the group that's working and splashing it up on the board and say, saying, how can I tell this group is working from across the room? Like, I can't sit at all your groups, but I can look across the room, and I can see that this group is high-functioning. How do I know this is a high-functioning group? And the kids will say, well, they're all looking at the same computer screen. They're all folk, they, they all have their hands on something to do with the project. They're looking at each other. Their body, body language suggests that they're working together. Or I'll stop um, and and find that group that's really working well and I'll say, okay, can you guys explain two or three things that is really making your group high functioning right now? And we'll write those on the board. And so maybe it's that they've put away all of their distracting devices. Maybe they've all got a task that feels legitimate to the project and they've got um, little classroom benchmarks. So by the halfway through the class they want to be at point A and by the end of the class point B. So they've got a really well articulated daily agenda. So we put those things on the board. And then by the same token, I find a group that's dysfunctional. And I ask them before I call them out, but I say, okay, there's a group that's really, uh, you know, the trains are coming off the track. So could you tell me what's not working? And they'll say, you know, somebody is not present in the group. They're up and wandering or whatever else they say. And we put those on the board. So then the, the kids have a list of things that they should do. So I say, if your group is not functioning, look at that list of positive um, group attributes and, and adopt one of those. See if that can get you back on track while I'm over here helping this other group. Or if um, you see any of the behaviors listed on the don't do list, you know that your group is about to fall off the rails. So, you know, those moments when it's happening, I think, are much more valuable teaching moments than trying to front load everything. And I think that goes into, we've talked about this in past episodes about need to knows driving a project. It's the same kind of thing when they're running into those walls or those situations where they're not functioning well, that creates the need to knows that, again, drive the skills and the project forward for your students. I'd be so amped if one of my kids put a need to know on there, how do I function in a group that I, it's not my friend, you know, it's not a group that I chose and, and I've never, I don't think I've ever seen it, but in every project we end up having a conversation about how to how to improve our collaboration skills and, and how to figure out how to to manage what happens when someone's not pulling their weight or what happens when someone won't let the other people in the group uh, take control of some of the parts of the project. So I think it'd be great if some of those things became part of the need-to-know list. You know, it it doesn't always have to just be content and project-related. And that Uh, goes right back to what Raven was saying about modeling the vocabulary from mm -hmm. day one and getting them to have those crucial conversations. If we don't model it for them, um, they don't know how to do that. So that's such a huge part of our job as the PBL facilitator. And, and I think some of that comes down to the tools that you have access to as well. Uh, you know, when we think about uh, collaboration, we can think about group contracts. And, and when we think about um, just kind of that process of inquiry, we have the no need to know list and we have a workshop request list. But, you know, what are the other tools that are out there to help uh, create or develop a classroom culture that, that thrives in a PBL environment? Or, or how do we create that um, that environment using different protocols? What What are some go-tos that you guys have that maybe um, you could share with our listeners. I like to teach my kids to have crucial conversations. Uh, and there's a book called Crucial, crucial Conversations. And, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm very transparent with the kids, so I tell them what I'm teaching them. I'm going to teach you how to have a crucial conversation. Things that occur when you're having a crucial conversation are, you know, usually it happens when the stakes are high and emotions run high. So knowing those two things helps them understand what they're dealing with, and then you give them tools. Like there's a thing called an and statement where two people are disagreeing in a group, and, and it's not an either or, 
it's a how do we navigate to a statement that contains an and that we can both live with. So we'll practice doing that. So let's say you like chocolate and you like vanilla. How are you going to contrive an and statement that pleases you both? So we practice it when the stakes are low and emotions aren't running high. Few people probably want to get in a fist fight over chocolate versus vanilla ice cream. But if they practice it in an easy environment, then they can take that to a stakes are high environment. Um, you know, teaching them things like how to form trust in a group. That's one of the elements that um, is identified in the five dysfunctions of a team is lacking trust. So teaching them how to trust each other um, by giving them opportunities to share stories or share experiences. You know, talk about uh, the most ineffective group you were in and how did you feel and, and what was your role and, and how did you feel excluded. So once they start having those conversations, they feel a little bit more trust with each other. So um, I tend to use a lot of tools from business or tools from um, like the self-help type of, of world. Um, you know, you talked about growth yeah. mindset. Yeah. There are lots of tools associated with that. Um, I think similar to that on the elementary level, um, I've been working with Sherry Hashman. She's our UDL facilitator. And this past year, we had a group that did not want to work well with others at all. And I think on the elementary level, it's different because you're, you might be my best friend one day, and I'm mad because you did this instead. So, you know, we're dealing with a lot of different emotions, I think, on the elementary level. So she comes in, and she does little lessons with us on how to be a good friend and how to make eye contact and how do we know that we're talking with each other. And I think those small things, to me, are small things, but it makes a world of a difference, especially at a younger level. If we're teaching those skills now as they get to you all in secondary, hopefully it will become more natural for them to work together in groups and collaborate well. And, and that's kind of our goal is to start it at the you know elementary level and hopefully can continue on. So something as, as simple as how, to, how do I know I'm having a conversation of you, body language. Older kids know how to do that. Little kids don't. So I think there's just um, a huge difference on those little, maybe small little snippets you have to do with them to get them prepared. Yeah, and I think one thing that happens as, and I think we've noticed it up at the, the high school level, as, as kids come through and have been in PBL for a while, uh, there are certain things that, there's certain language that they continue to use. You know, they know about group contracts, they know about knows and need to knows. So, you know, the, the I guess the question that um, I think we need to think about is how do we make sure that our, our students don't become complacent in that process um, and that they're continuing to evolve. You know, if, if you use the same process for 100 years, it may work, but there's probably something better at some point that you should adapt to and change to that could help make your, your business more efficient or run run better. So how do we how do we keep things fresh? Uh, how do we make sure that our kids aren't complacent and, and that they're dreaming for, for that next level or, or striving to, to improve, even if they're doing what they're doing is really good, how do we make sure that they're looking for something beyond what they're already doing? I think that's very important. Um, you know, one of the tenets of a PBL classroom is that it's individualized and it's student-centered. Uh, so we need to keep our finger on the pulse of, of that student so that we can tell when things are getting a little stale or they're getting a little bit fatigued with a particular protocol we're using. So I think that mandates... Uh, Situation where the facilitator is continually learning and growing. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I'm not fond of is when people say, in my whatever unit, I do this. Well, I think that you should say, in my whatever unit, I did this. I might do it again because it was successful, but I'm going to change some things too. And I think that's a growth mindset piece. Um, so I think the facilitator needs to continually look for 
new places to, to find discussion protocols and new ways to inject that classroom with excitement. And you know, you can't do need to knows the same way every time it gets boring. You can't debrief the same way every time it gets boring, especially for kids who have been doing it for 11, 12, 13 years. Um, they want something new and exciting, and, and that's fair. And they should have something more complex as well. My ninth graders, the first year we opened CSA, had never done PBL before. We had to teach them everything, quite like what you're having to do, Raven, at elementary school. Mm -hmm. Our ninth graders now have been in PBL school, most of them, for right. a handful of years. So we are obligated to meet them where they are and then grow them to a new place. And so that's just like you would do anything else with your content. You wouldn't teach kids who were grammar savvy what, what verbs and subjects are. You would take them at the level they are and then grow them to a, a better level. So you have to do that, I think, with PBL tools as well. I definitely agree almost 100% with that, no matter what level that you're on. Um, you know, when you think about PBL and I think about traditional unit one, week one, day one, you know, looking at our wonders or whatever that we're using for our resources, I'm going to always supplement some way or somehow that my students need. I don't get that workbook out and say, here you go. I'm not a worksheet person. So I think just always stretching your mind and finding those different moments where you can pull those pieces in, like you, you said, definitely is going to keep them challenged. And I think if they are at whatever ability level, um, since we do you know, standard-based grading, if they are at that three, then how are you going to get them to a four? And constantly looking at those students and making sure that their needs are met. I think it's a little difficult, but that's something that we strive to. Well, I think that's all the questions we have for today. I think it's been a really great conversation. Thank you both for joining thank us. You. And, oh, thank you for having uh, us. Good luck as you guys start your years. Yeah. Thank you, you okay. too. Wow, Andrea, what a great conversation. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk to two facilitators who are digging into PBL with their kids every single day. During our conversation, there were a few books that were mentioned that we want to take a little bit of time to highlight in case you're interested in adding to your summer reading list. Or for those of you starting back very soon, maybe just your reading list. The first one is Mindset by Carol Dweck. In a growth mindset, people believe that their most basic abilities can be developed through dedication and hard work. Brains and talent are just the starting point. This view creates a love of learning and a resilience that is essential for great accomplishment. Virtually all great people have had these qualities. Teaching a growth mindset creates motivation and productivity in the worlds of business, education, and sports. It enhances relationships. When you read Mindset, you'll see how. Rochelle mentioned The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team is a business book by consultant and speaker Patrick Lencioni, first published in 2002. It describes the many pitfalls that teams face as they seek to grow together. Throughout the story, Lencioni reveals the five dysfunctions which go to the very heart of why teams, even the best ones, often struggle. He outlines a powerful model and actionable steps that can be used to overcome these hurdles and build a cohesive, effective team. Lastly, for those of you looking for a bigger picture, PBL Stories and Structures by Magnify Learning's Executive Director Ryan Stoyer is a great place to start. Project-Based Learning Stories and Structures is a practical guide to starting a PBL journey, complete with examples of fails, wins, and a place to get started. Everyone on your staff will have a place to relate in the practical structures and the humorous stories from the classroom. This book includes real-life classroom examples of every PBL concept introduced, a simple six-step structure to help guide teachers and students through their PBL journey together, and practical steps tested by thousands of educators in all types of schools. Project-Based Learning Stories and Structures is your go-to guide for practical, boots-on-the-ground advice to introduce or improve PBL in any classroom. Why not start a book study that everyone will participate in and actually finish? These books are available on Amazon. You can find the link to purchase in our show notes. Check them out. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening to us this week. Stay tuned for some awesome new content coming in September. Ready, break! Thanks again for joining Josh and Andrea for the PBL Playbook, where we give you the playbook of real PBL facilitators in the classroom just like you and help bring you strategies and tools for your PBL game. If you want to reach the pod, you can tweet at AskGIEBS, at MissB103, and at MagnifyLearning. Or you can email the PBL Playbook at MagnifyLearningN.org with any questions, thoughts, or ideas you have. Also be sure to show Josh and Andrea some PBL love by rating, reviewing, and sharing the PBL Playbook with other educators.